Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Years ago, I put together an edited volume called Arguments for Liberty. Every chapter took a different school of moral philosophy and made the case for liberalism within it. The point wasn't to just be an introduction to moral philosophy by way of being an introduction to liberalism, but also to show that the case for liberty isn't limited to a single philosophical school. It's much more universal than that. But it's not limited to academic philosophy either. Religion informs the ethical worldview of most people, and discussing the case for liberalism within religious contexts enriches liberalism and our understanding of it. That's why I'm so happy to be joined today by my friend, Kat Murdy. Kat is the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy and co-founder of Feminists for Liberty, but she is also a practicing Hindu. Hinduism is a fascinating faith I know too little about. So I asked Kat to join me on the show to give an introduction to Hinduism and then to discuss how her Hindu faith informs her radical liberalism and how her liberalism informs her Hindu practice. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. With that, let's turn to my conversation with Kat Murdy. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Hinduism, which I imagine is is a lot of people listening right now, and I know this is a big question, but what is Hinduism? Can you give us the basics? Yeah, that's actually a really good question, and it's difficult to answer, right? Uh, the basic, the basic is that Hinduism is the world's oldest continuously uh, practiced religion or faith. Hinduism's been around for at least 5,000 years. There's evidence of uh, early Hindu practices, potentially as far back as 12,000 BC. That's, that's, that's like the beginnings of human civilization. Um, but of course, what I, as a Hindu in 2023, might see as my faith would probably be extremely different from what somebody, you know, in 10,000 BC or 5,000 BC or even uh, even a thousand years ago might have viewed as uh, what it meant to be Hindu. And they probably wouldn't have called themselves that either, right? Um, there's a reason why a lot of Hindus will say that it's not a religion, it's a way of life. Um, it's sort of like a mindset, it's a background, we don't proselytize, we're not a proselytizing religion, it's, um, most Hindus were born into Hinduism, we didn't have any sort of uh, official way of converting into Hinduism until very recently in the last century, mostly came about with uh, interest from hippies who wanted to who wanted to be Hindus. And so we came up with a way to do it. Right. Uh, but I think one of the core concepts of Hinduism is that there is one truth, but there are many different ways of seeing it. Uh, and that kind of makes Hinduism very tolerant, potentially more tolerant than any other faith that you hear about, because you can be a Hindu and you can uh, be an atheist. You can be a Hindu and you can be a very fervent believer. You can be a Hindu and you can be an agnostic. Um, and there's nothing in Hinduism that says you must have one specific set of beliefs. You don't need to uh, belong to a specific congregation. We don't have um, 
a leader who tells us uh, what our rules are or what we should believe. Now, that doesn't mean that the average Hindu doesn't have a whole lot of constraints that they might put on themselves um, as a result of their Hindu beliefs. A lot of these are vary greatly by um, their specific community and the specific area that they are from. Um, and it is tied to their Hinduism, but they're all just different facets of Hinduism. Uh, for me as a Hindu, I can um, I can go to a church, I can go to a synagogue, I can go to any of these different ways and experience God in that way if I want to. And that makes me no less a Hindu, which um, is difficult to understand for uh, people of other faiths, I think, where that's kind of like a declaration of of a difference in faith. Um, I had this conversation with Emily Eakins a long time ago, several years ago, and she was putting out um, a study that she did, a survey on faith in America. And one of the things I was asking her is how, like, why there wasn't more about Hinduism in it, just as a personal interest, but also um, how she was defining practicing Hindus, right? Because what makes a practicing Hindu? I have an altar in my home that I frequently I spend time with, etc. Many Hindus do. Many Hindus don't. Um, I have uh, friends and family who might go to a temple every day or every week, and I have others who haven't been in years. Um, I have Hindu friends who uh, do consider themselves very observant and others who don't. And this makes it very difficult to define in um Emily Eakin's case, what we came to is one of the difficulties with survey data around this is that, well, what makes one a practicing adherent of a religion oftentimes comes down to, well, do you have a congregation? Do you go with the congregation? And do you um, do you follow a set of practices on a regular basis alongside this congregation? And that's just not how Hinduism works. If that is what you want out of Hinduism, you can get it. But it's a very personal faith, a very personal approach to the world that I think probably shapes the way that most Hindus think about others and about themselves and about um, the world that we live in, but in a very subtle way. Um, you know, this is it's difficult as well to extricate ideas about Hinduism from ideas about India. India is, of course, not the only Hindu nation. There's many other nations with many Hindus in it, uh, both historically and especially now with the vast uh, Indian diaspora. But um, most Indians are Hindu, not all. Most Indians are Hindu. And so a lot of our beliefs kind of come from that as well. They're these more cultural beliefs, cultural uh, compacts. And so you, you see that as well. It's definitely almost as if, um, like a lot of Jews might say that they're Jewish. They they identify as culturally Jewish, but not religiously Jewish. That's also um, a part of the faith. And so it's um, it's difficult. There's just thousands of years of being Hindu. And what that means uh, means something, I think, uniquely different to every single Hindu, both in practice and in conception. Uh, just as a brief aside, the, the point about the problems of survey data and measuring is is I think an interesting one and probably one that a lot of listeners haven't really thought about or aware of because it is the case that when we – so when political scientists are out there measuring religiosity and whatnot, they do it through a remarkably Western monotheism perspective where the practice of religion is commitment to this faith community that then manifests as – one day a week 
attending some sort of church, synagogue, temple sort of thing. And I was at a conference once um, talking with some political scientists. And so I was at the table and then there was a woman who works doing legal aid in the Sikh community in, I think it was Los Angeles. And the two of us were basically telling these political scientists, like, look, you know, in my case, like most Buddhists don't attend a temple regularly. It's not part of the practice. If that's what you're measuring, you're not going to pick it up. And she was saying the same is true for Sikh community. And it was the political scientists like, whoa, we that's don't. the exact same thing with yeah. Hindus. There are Hindus who do. There are Hindus for whom it is such a huge part of their community, their practice. But um, most Hindus probably, um, probably mostly observe their faith in private at home or amongst their family members. Or, and in some cases, they may not outwardly, um, outwardly ex uh, express their faith at all. It might just be kind of what's shaping whom they are as a person uh, just from that background. It's it's cultural in a way. And so that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was talking about India, because when one of the things uh, when I've had friends who visit India for the first time, uh, I always like to talk to them about their experiences and kind of how that went and stuff like that. And there are two main things that all come out of every single discussion I've had with folks about like, okay, you went to India. What was it like? What did you... these two things always come up? And one is there are so many people because people are just blown away by the fact that they're just everywhere you go. There are people you can be the most rural area and there are people. Right. So that's surprising to people. And then the other one that I found really surprises people is how much religion is just a part of life. And it's not in this sort of, I mean, of course, there are very like uh, fanatical Hindus and uh, people who follow fanatical faith beliefs everywhere. And I think that's a growing movement uh, for political reasons now in India. But um but for most Hindus, it's just a part of our daily life. Like it might just be things like the happy birthday song as it's sung in India includes a verse about may God bless you. Right. Uh, it's just it's just these little things, the way that uh, everyone expects that on your first day of a new job, you're not going to show up on time. You'll be about uh, a half an hour late past the 10 a.m. hour. Well, that, they haven't written that into their handbooks. It's not a specific religious belief. But it does come from these kind of cultural conceptions around uh, the religion and things like that. And so, um, you know, we have all of these little things that are just kind of like daily life for people. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, though, a relationship to God. And so let me use that to ask about are there core, I guess, metaphysical commitments to Hinduism? At, at its center, because like there's lots of, it's it's a it's a large tradition with lots of variants spread geographically across diverse populations and so on and so forth. So there's going to be variants, but is there a, a core set of metaphysical you know beliefs about a particular sort of divine being or beings, a particular you know structure or origins of the universe, like the kinds of things that we would think of as you know, the the core religious commitments of, you know, if we're talking about Christianity or Islam or something else, there's there's this stuff that makes it it. Yes and no. So 
I mean, as as a non-Christian, uh, my understanding is what makes you a Christian is belief in John 3.16. I believe it's uh, that there is one that there is one God who had one son whose name is Jesus who died for um, our sins or something similar to that. Right. There's no similar belief in Hinduism. There's not like I said earlier, you don't have to be. A, a theist even you can be an atheist you can be agnostic and still be a hindu and that's not even a modern conception as far back as um as the vedas which are kind of like the closest you get to having books in in our faith there's four vedas and uh they're sort of the central of the faith but we're not a book-based religion most hindus haven't read the vedas especially not in that sense they probably have parts of them memorized but um they haven't read or conceived of them in that way. It's not the same way as in the Bible. We don't have like a set of test. Uh, we don't have like the the Ten Commandments or things like that that you'd have to follow in that same way. There is, for example, concept of Manusmriti, which is like a book of rules, almost similar to maybe Leviticus, for example. And in the very same way, it's sort of become this very politicized topic that um, a lot of political Hindus now bring up a lot and they have these kind of conceptions around it. But most Hindus for, at least in the modern era, uh, friends, family of the last few generations, they never even really thought about or, uh, you know, spent much time thinking about what happens in Manusmriti because it's just so much like not a part of their daily life or their conception of the religion. Right. Um, and, you know, there's monotheistic views of uh, Hinduism, there's polytheistic, there's all sorts of different things. Now, I will say there is probably the most most Hindus probably have a version that is falls something along the lines of there is a God or a divine being that is in and of everything. It's um, all of us are of God. We we are made by God. We are God within ourselves everything in the universe is of and by god uh there's different ways to conceive this but mostly split into the triumvirate of brahma the creator um vishnu the like sort of rule maker or the the one who's kind of keeping things running in stasis and then um shiva who's the destroyer right and so you have all three of these uh and then there's a whole um there's a whole mythology outside of this of their partners and things like that. We have an idea um, within Hinduism of uh, both male and female energy um, and their equal importance uh, in all things. You must have a balance between them and they have different roles. And so uh, there are certainly beliefs like that that are shared. There's, um, you know, there's infinite gods within hinduism but most hindus would recognize uh, a certain set of gods as the ones that they are they're used to those are going to be gods many of whom uh, a non-hindu in the modern era would probably uh, at least have seen before even if their conceptions are quite different than what um what a practicing hindu might believe like ganesha or like kali uh, the goddess of destruction uh, I kind of view Shiva as more creative destruction and Kali as more just pure destruction, for example. But that's something that Hindus disagree on, for example. Um, 
So there are some core beliefs, but they don't actually require you to believe them in exactly that way. I'm going to ask about the ethics now. Um, and so one one thing, Hinduism has the notion of ahimsa or, or non-harming as, as a central principle, which uh, is interesting because I, I just finished writing an essay about Buddhist liberalism and didn't use that term from the Sanskrit, but that same principle shows up. I mean, obviously, they're both Indian origin faiths. Uh, and yeah, this is this is very off the cuff, but I often like to when I'm trying to make the analogy for people, I'm almost I sometimes think of it as Buddhism is like the Protestantism if Hinduism is the Catholicism, right? It's uh, it's the narrowing down of the faith and releasing some of the ritual from it. And so I'm just curious about because I like it's it's remarkable how both of these just really center a form of harmlessness as as a fundamental ethical principle. Yes, I think that that's true. And I think that's one of those things, too, that I notice, um, you know, there is there is an outward appreciation of this. Certainly, um, Hindus are more likely to be vegetarian, for example, than um, most other faiths, probably, uh, other than perhaps things like Jainism, uh, which is, again, an offshoot of Hinduism from quite a while ago. But um, the most Hindus still are not vegetarians. They probably consume some manner of uh, of non-veg uh, at some points, even though they probably many of them probably consume much less than, say, your average Christian. Uh, but I do think that the the mentality behind it is still quite different. Uh, this is something that I've found comes up in all sorts of funny things that you really wouldn't expect, like. Um, I saw a study a while ago, and I can't quote this because this was several years ago, but I remember it sticking out. I was at actually a political campaign conference, um, and I saw this just like a study that someone was talking about that they had done, uh, and they'd broken about, down by demographics, which groups were most interested in which issues. And Indians, uh, both in India and Indian Americans, uh, rated uh, the environment and climate change is one of the most important issues to them above all else. And of course, like people might question, OK, well, India is not known for having the best environment in the world. And I think that there's other elements uh, that have to do with that. A lot of it has to do with uh, just um, wealth. Uh, we do know that the wealthier a country is, the better the environment tends to be, the better treatment of animals tends to be. And I think that this is a point that India is certainly reaching towards. but. The fact that that issue stuck out so important for so many uh, Indians, again, not all of whom, but many of whom are Hindu, I think really does come from that that concept of ahimsa, even if they're not actively thinking about it this way. And it's something that I've found comes up in all sorts of different policy discussions and values discussions where we're not actually talking about our religion. But I notice that Hindus tend to view um, the environment and animals and things like that as um, individuals are having their own right to exist, to be there um, just the same way as a human does. Whereas I think in the more Christian conception, God created the animals to serve the humans. And I think that that kind of changes the way in which we see the world around us. Right. And so I think that there's things like that that come up and it's not 
that Hindus uh, are just somehow more empathetic, loving people. Some of them certainly might be, but there can be very cruel, horrible people as well who are Hindu. And um, But I do think that that's just sort of a way that when we talk about Hinduism being a way of life, I think that that's kind of like the way that we view the world, that lens that we're seeing the world through uh, because of our cultural or ethical or religious priors is different. So one thing that two of us share is we have committed our professional lives to the advancement of political liberty and economic liberty, social liberty, individual liberty in a way that is, I'll say, quite radical. We are, you and I are kind of on the, we're outside of the mainstream in terms of the degree of liberty that we demand in the world. Uh, and, and I think it, I wish we weren't too. Well, someday. Well, this is. We're, I wish we weren't. We're working at it. <laughs> uh, but for both of us, like the reason we've done this is not because it's an incredibly lucrative career in you know the cause of liberty, but because we our our basic principles, our moral values, our perspective on the world compels us into this. Like we, you know, this is really important. Um, how does your your Hindu beliefs, the values that that brings to you, how does that play into this, the thrust of the thing you've chosen to do with your life and career? Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you brought this up. This is something that uh, it's like a fun thought experiment that I play with myself all the time. Am I a Hindu because I am a libertarian or am I a libertarian because I am a Hindu? Right. Because obviously not all Hindus are libertarians by far, un unfortunately. Right. <laughs> and certainly not all libertarians are Hindus. But for me, those two are so intertwined. And part of that is because in Hinduism, uh, as I see it and as many have seen it historically as well, we have this concept of um, each individual has their own right path that they need to follow. And what is right and wrong for that individual is not the same as what is right and wrong for another individual who is set on another path. Now, I think that there is something that all religions struggle with, which is um, which is the politicization and the the temptation to give in to power structures, right? So I did say that Hinduism itself is non-hierarchical. However, we are the uh, the product of the world around us, and so certainly there are things like the caste system, which is illegal in India and uh, which I think is much better viewed um, as community differences at this point because we do have um, communal or language or food differences that I think still make make these conflicts continue to arise. Um, but I think that that was politicized uh, into the concept of dharma very much so that for a lot of people, they view it as solely caste based, like because you were born into this caste. Oh, I'm sorry. Dharma being your your path, the the right path for you as an individual, right? And so I think for a long time it was viewed as a sort of caste based thing, but I don't think that that's actually um, how we should view dharma. I think dharma is much more about the individual person, the individual soul, in as much as you can be besold or be a soul. Um, and so there is a right path for each person. There is a role for them to play, but it is not the same as anyone else's. And 
what and the the right and wrong for the, each person is going to vary greatly based upon what their role is, what their dharma is. And then many people know the concept of karma as well. It's uh, loosely translated um, kind of uh, off the cuff as um, good or bad points that you're getting that ties to your dharma, right? Like, if uh, are you are you fulfilling that role in the right way or not? And so, um, you know, I might disagree with what you're doing, but it is not my path to walk. And I don't know uh, what is right for you. I only know what is right for me. Right. And I think that that is a very centrally libertarian view. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, with libertarianism, because you can disagree with someone. You can think that uh, what they're doing is unethical or immoral or just stupid. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you use the power of the state to stop them. And that for me is very much like there are many things that people do that I think they shouldn't do. And yet I think they should be legal. And I think that they should have the ability to do them. Um, and so I think that that's actually for me, that is a very Hindu conception. And there are many different like unique issues that I think about. And I play that same thought experiment on. Am I viewing this through a Hindu lens? Am I viewing this through a libertarian lens? And oftentimes I find that it's some sort of amalgamation of the two and it's almost impossible to fully separate them. When you're talking about this, this unique path for each person, is that path freely chosen by them in a Hindu conception in the sense that it that we could use as a synonym for it something like self-authorship or autonomy? Or is it something that is decided for them, just like not by you and me and you know the other people they share the world with, but rather some sort of other kind of metaphysical constructs or principles or their place in in how this all fits together? So this is where we get back to the discussion about. Um, is there one set view in Hinduism? And I think that this is one of the things that Hindus would probably disagree on, right? Uh, because there are Hindus like me who, you know, more or less believe that you're born to fill a role. Um, there is a role. There is a path. There is something. It's a big picture. It's way too big of a picture for me to ever understand it, but it exists, right? And so that that is the path that you're following you're born into it um and then there are hindus who probably believe that it is entirely self-written and there's probably a whole lot of people who are somewhere in between uh you might view this something like the the calvinist debate of the 1700s right like is there predetermination or not um but for the average hindu it's just not as much of their daily thought process like is uh when i think about it my personal view, uh, this is I'm not speaking for Hinduism, but my own personal interpretation of it is I think that there is probably some degree of predetermination in the world. Things are work in some way. They're meant to work in some way. There is some plan, maybe a plan. Maybe there's many plans that are sort of working against each other. I don't know. I'm not capable of knowing. I'm such a small part of it. And yet... I think that we should act nonetheless as if we have free will and try to make the best decisions for ourselves and uh, the most moral and ethical decisions at all points, regardless of whether or not we're actually able to make that choice or not. 
why is then if if Hinduism and your and libertarianism for you are so intertwined that you can't you know it like in your own mind you can't kind of conceptually tease them apart in terms of what's motivating you and which one you know came first and how they fully inform each other and so on why isn't india liberal well power is a powerful drug isn't it um i mean it's the same thing as i talked about earlier it's people religion is a very useful tool to control people it always has been. It always will be. That doesn't mean that that's a failure of religion itself. That's just simply a facet of it as it can happen. Um, so that's certainly a part of it. And I think uh, we've been viewing a rise of illiberalism in India uh, that's uh, that's largely coming from this Hindutva thrust uh, of the past few decades. Uh, that is something that I think is actually detrimental not just to India itself, um, which I th I believe India has always found its greatest strength, her greatest strength in um, diversity, in um, communalism, really, having different communities of people who are sort of almost self-governing within their community, but interact with each other, um, exchange in markets together, et cetera, and so are very different and yet part of the same larger community um and that's existed for thousands of years there's a reason why um so many communities from around the world escaped to india in the early parts of history right because it was just a safer place to be for them um so that but hinduism itself where like i said i believe that hinduism is fundamentally an individual religion we are not book-based we do not have one set of beliefs um, and if anything, if there is a core Hindu belief, it's that um, there is one truth, but there are many different ways to see it. If the best way for you to pursue your truth is through Islam or is through Judaism or is through Christianity or Buddhism or Jainism, Sikhism, um, is through atheism, whatever it is, um, it's not for me to determine that for you. Right. Uh, but I think that there there is a strong um, there's a role here that both the uh, desire for power has played over time. There's also a lot of historical hurts that people feel, um, whether it's due to the caste system or due to responses to the caste system or due to various to land disputes, due to things that have happened as a result of colonialism or. Um, you know, things that have happened in some cases, particularly with um, with India, people who have gone out, lived in other countries as Hindus, been sort of felt very oppressed there and then come back and wanted to have this more radically um, fervent fundamentalist view of Hinduism as a result of, um, you know, feeling oppressed by more fundamentalist beliefs elsewhere. Um so all of those, I think, are at play, uh, certainly. And then there's just this constant reactionaryism that happens. And that's sort of fueled a lot of times by what people are seeing uh, in social media misinformation. It's the same as we've seen with polarization in the United States, maybe not along those same religious lines as much, but um, amongst racial or political lines. So I think that that's happening as well. Um, 
And it's very frustrating. This this thing about Hindutva, too, is that, one, I don't think that it really represents what it means to be a Hindu. But it's also a very narrow view of being a Hindu and of being an Indian. There's this idea that, um, you know, all Indians wear one national dress, that we all speak Hindi, that we all must be Hindu, but not just Hindu, but a specific version of Hindu with a specific narrow set of Hindu beliefs that are not embraced by all Hindus and have not been embraced by all Hindus, that we all look a certain way. And if you look at what India is and what India always has been and what India's strength has always been, we are a nation of hundreds of different languages and uh, dialects. We are a nation of at least as many um, individual faith beliefs, uh, particularly when you look at like the difference between this small community from this area and the neighboring small community from this area, right? Uh, we are a nation of ethnically, we are actually quite diverse, uh, which I think gets erased a lot of times in the discussion, both within and outside of India. And so um, it's dangerous and concerning, but I don't think that that comes necessarily from Hinduism. I think that Hinduism can simply be a tool because faith has always been able to be used as a tool in order to push a specific political narrative. But I will say as well, when we're talking about um, authoritarianism, India has, historically was one of the most tolerant nations. Um, even under, for example, Mughal rule, the Mughals were uh, Muslim rulers of India prior to the colonial times, British colonial times. And some of the main Mughal rulers followed a rule of they would oftentimes marry one Hindu, one uh, Muslim and one Jain or other belief wife um, as part of their ruling strategy in order to com to uh, bring together these faiths and have sort of like an approach there. Right. So I think that there's lots of things that have been done that way. And we have this much the same way as we're seeing in the United States where there's this political populist th a historical thrust where people don't want to talk about things like the existence of slavery or Jim Crow laws and um they feel that it's sort of like it weakens us as a nation to acknowledge that this happened or whatever it is um you're seeing a similar thing in India where uh you know Gandhi for example Mahatma Gandhi who's been viewed as the father of the nation for a long time and was probably one of the most beloved Indians when I was growing up um, you know, there's all sorts of Hindutvas who are actively against him now because they feel that he betrayed the Hindu faith by having this more tolerant view, uh, which I would argue is part of what being a Hindu is. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a push not to teach about Mughal history at all, um, rather the, because they're seen as invaders who came in rather than um, Indians who were there instead of, for instance, teaching more about the Pallava kings or other uh, ruling dynasties that were more Dravidian. Um, there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of things like this that are happening that I think we can kind of see a close parallel in U.S. politics or politics that we're seeing around the world. You had in when we were chatting before I hit the record button, um, you had mentioned gender in Hinduism and and the three genders versus two and. I wanted to ask about that because I have done episodes of this show about transgender rights and and not just rights, but like just kind of radical transgender acceptance. Um, 
and I've written about this topic a lot. And, you know, and one of the one of the real regrets I have when I look at kind of our liberty movement is how many people in the liberty movement seem to have decided that liberty is good unless it's the liberty to change your gender and then it's a problem and your healthcare should be denied or we shouldn't worry about healthcare being denied or we shouldn't worry about you being excluded and so on. And I find it just like profoundly distressing. And But one of the arguments that gets made in the kind of anti-trans is not only that there are only two genders, but of course there's always only been two genders, that everybody knows that it's just natural that there's two genders. And, and this is kind of historically ignorant, right? Like, um, but but I wanted to ask about that in the in the Hindu context specifically, because there's it's it's an interesting kind of contrast to this to our kind of Western American notion that, of course, this is natural in the way things have always been. Yeah, this is one of the things every time I hear that argument, first off, I echo strongly uh, your belief that, you know, this is just a deeply unlibertarian view, right? Like, why uh, why are we for individual liberty and self-determination on everything except for some of the most personal things that happen to someone, right? How they view themselves and how they present themselves very much should be <laughs> you would think would be at the core of liberty and should be at the core of liberty. Um, but yeah, I always find it very ahistorical when people suggest that this is this new idea, right? Because trans people have always existed. They've always existed. And um, that's not a radical belief. There's uh, examples across many different uh, cultures and faiths going back into prehistorical times, pre-written history. Within Hinduism itself, we do have a concept of three genders. It's a little complicated, but essentially boils down to male, female, and everything sort of in between, right? And there's a reason for that, because there is everything sort of in between, even if we're just on the biological level looking at the fact that some people are intersex, right? And so there is an existence of these people. But, um, you know, Hinduism, again, there's it's one of the world's oldest religions, and there's evidence of, for example, Shiva being worshipped as far back as 12,000 uh, BC. And Shiva, one of his uh, forms that he comes as is Mohini, where he is a woman. It's Shiva as a woman. So this is a man who is a man who transforms into a woman. All right. That that is that is a trans conception. We have another uh, Hindu de- deity who you don't hear about as much, but Ardhanarishvara who is half male and half female, right, uh, depicted as. And the reason that um, we depict it that way is to show that they contain both the male and the female energy, which I mentioned earlier is sort of like one of those background concepts of Hinduism. And it's intertwined and yet separate, right, within this one individual. That, again, is another clearly trans conception. Um, And then, you know, we've had... Uh, the, the we've had uh, trans people within India for a very long time, and most Indians are actually fairly socially conservative. Um, and so there is this is something that comes out where it is the the way the tolerance is observed or has historically been observed in India is oftentimes like there are separate communities, right? So there are trans people; they've always been around, and oftentimes they're just separate, and they're respected as any separate from the main group. And I'm not saying that that's the best way for it to exist, but 
it certainly has always been around. This is not a new thing by any any um, any measure. We have, it, for thousands and thousands of years, we've recognized that all people do not either biologically or otherwise fall specifically as just male or just female. I I brought this up partly in the context, and I just have to ask about this. Um, we suddenly have a a Hindu fairly prominent on the political scene in America um, and fascinatingly on the far right of the American political scene. So I'm just curious, as a as a practicing Hindu, your reaction to Vivek Ramaswamy? Yeah, Vivek Ramaswamy. Yes. So like I have such complicated and convoluted views about this man, right? So I saw when I first heard about him, I saw one of his uh, early campaign ads come out. I saw him. I I heard some of the things he was talking about, like the importance of markets and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I like that. And, you know, I can I can see him. He's clearly an Indian man. You don't see that very often. Um, increasingly, Indians certainly are getting increasing political power in the United States, as we've seen even with the last election. Um, but. You know, this is interesting. And then one of the things that he said he was running on the basis of in his ad was faith. And then I saw his name and I'm like, OK, well, Vivek Ramaswamy, that's clearly a Hindu name. It's not just a Hindu name. It's a Hindu name for my specific community. What does he mean by faith? Because when I see faith in a campaign ad, particularly when I see a cam faith in a Republican campaign ad, not that I think that it appears in uh, any Democratic ads to my knowledge. Uh, they mean a certain specific type of Christian nationalism, right? So that's usually, that's my cue to step out. Um, I believe very strongly in religious liberty, but many of the people who also claim to believe in religious liberty don't. They just want their specific narrow view of Christian Protestantism, evangelicalism most often, to be a ruling power. It's the opposite of religious liberty, right? So I was curious. I Googled it. I was like, what faith is Vivek Ramaswamy? And I found that that was a very popular uh, Google search. And so it, it, uh, it at the time I couldn't find anything, but I was curious. I started following the guy and um, it has come up a few times on the campaign trail for him. And he's talked about being Hindu and he's talked about his Hindu beliefs and about how he's offering an alternative to Christian nationalism. Um while still having the strong faith belief that he thinks is at the core of the American identity, and I think probably is, at least to some degree. Uh, so it's very interesting how that kind of plays out there. Um, I will say uh, there are parts of me that uh, make me kind of want to support this guy in the in the primary simply to send a message to Republicans that, hey, you know what, if you weren't all um christian nationalists if you weren't honestly a lot of them quite racist um if you weren't um anti-immigrant then you would be able to support people like uh then you would get so much more support a lot of indians actually do hold uh you know free market and fairly socially conservative uh beliefs even if they are so even if they may not uh it's complicated it doesn't quite map the same way as your traditional american mapping right um, and so, like, th that's actually a lot of support for Republicans. Now, that said, Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't seem to hold typical Hindu beliefs either. Um, 
One of them, obviously, he's made some very inflammatory comments on immigration, although I think some of it he's sort of edgelording when he's talking about things like, okay, yes, he doesn't support birthright citizenship. He believes that everyone should take a citizenship test to be able to vote. I wonder to what extent he's sort of um, he's sort of playing on this concept that um, the conservatives who oppose birthright citizenship do want birthright citizenship for their kids, right? Even if they may not be that educated in how um, in American civics and certainly um, certainly if you look just at standardized testing, uh, the children of Indian immigrants oftentimes are getting much higher scores on those types of things that under his system would be more likely to be able to vote than uh, the children of some of these Christian nationalists. Uh, so that's that's interesting. I kind of wonder if that's how much of that is an edgelord statement on his part. Um, but even on things like gender, he sent out an email that says things like, I believe, I believe, I believe one of these things and says, I believe there are only two genders. I'm like, well, you're also going out there and saying that you're a proud Hindu and that shapes all of your beliefs. How do you go out and say, I'm a proud Hindu who only believes in two genders when Hinduism itself recognizes three genders? So, um, certainly a lot of interesting political play there. Uh, but yeah, I do appreciate for the fact the fact that Hinduism is getting a bit of a national stage, not because I think that religion should determine uh, politics. I don't. But because I think that for too long, when people talk about religion on the political stage, they specifically mean Christianity. And occasionally they mean this sort of warped Judeo-Christianity, as they call it, uh, but that also oftentimes feels like just Christianity with like maybe they can do also do some stuff quietly in the corner. Um, so so I definitely do uh, appreciate that that's happening. And so, you know, as a as a wider point here, um, as a libertarian and a staunch individualist, um, there is a I don't like voting on identity. Right. I think that individualism matters and not our our not our skin color or background things like that i think that those shape who we are as people but what fundamentally matters is who we are as people uh but on the other hand there is something nice about in the last election kamala harris ran a campaign ad where for the first time in my life i heard my mother tongue um thummer uh, spoken in this campaign ad right and like i was like oh they're pandering but this is also the first time in my life i've been pandered to right so like there there is sort of a subtle appreciation of that where i almost like want to i i don't want the pandering to happen but if it is going to happen i like that they are at least attempting to pander to a wider array of different types of people <laughs> And it didn't make me vote for Kamala Harris, and it probably won't make me vote for Vivek Ramaswamy, but uh, I still appreciate it. And I still like the fact that we're that um, that that appreciation that we exist and that we matter and that politicians might want to consider w how we would vote um, is at least in the back of their minds. One of the reasons I've been doing these episodes on the intersection of radical liberalism and and different religious faiths is because a lot of people in our circles tend to be on the one hand i mean that i think 
atheism is probably overrepresented in libertarian circles compared to other political ideologies and the population at large, but there's also a, a deep hostility to, to religious beliefs and to the value of, of religious beliefs that I think is often unfortunate and, and can be motivated by either you know, just opposition to authority um, and, and then carrying that forward to you know, religious beliefs as kind of a, a form of like subservience to an authority or, or just the, you know, the negative experience of what political religiosity looks like in the United States and which is – it doesn't look good. You know? Or anywhere. Um, right. And, and so part of, part of this is that religions I think aren't just – a set of metaphysical claims that one can say, I don't, I don't believe that the, the God you say exists exists, or I don't believe that the creation story you have of the universe is the true one, but they are a rich philosophical tradition as well, a rich set of ideas and ethics and, and ways of perspectives on the world and so on that develops over a long time and has a tremendous amount of value independent of whether one accepts the, the underlying metaphysical claims. And so with that in mind, we've talked a fair amount about the way that you can construct libertarianism or radical liberalism, radical freedom within a Hindu context, right? But if you are now talking to non-Hindu listeners, people that are not going to they're not Hindus. They're not going to turn around and convert to it right now. Not but, trying to convert anyone. <laughs> but like, what is it? What do you see in that that tradition of Hindu thought and ideas that is of value to them? That they that you think could inform the way that they approach liberty, the arguments that are made. That just you know, if they take kind of the philosophical value out of this, what do they? What are we missing by not knowing more about about the Hindu tradition? That's a really good question. Um, so this conversation between the two of us arose because I read something that you'd written about the proselytizing atheist, uh, which has been sort of a thorn in my boot for a long time. Um, I, I, I find that kind of personality very irritating, right? Um, it's not atheism. It's that's not the the thing that bothers me. It's the it's the sort of like self-aggrandizing view of um, I'm just so much smarter than all of you theists out there uh, because I don't believe in this dumb idea uh, that oftentimes is like fundamentally uninformed. A lot of times uh, these sort of proselytizing atheists are pushing these beliefs of things like, yeah, well, I don't believe that the world was built, it was formed in seven days and okay, well, neither do most Hindus. And, you know, I believe in science. And, well, you know, there's an the awful lot of practicing religious folks who are in science and certainly lots of Hindus because our beliefs do not uh, do not push back against this, right? And so you had done a thought experiment with, um, you know, what makes, what makes uh, someone consider, oh, okay, are you an atheist or not? Or are you just making an exception for one belief uh, because that is the belief that you agree with? Um, 
so then why wouldn't you apply that to everything? And so I'm not saying this is your argument, but this was the argument as you laid it out in the piece that you wrote. And it came down to, is Zeus real? Right. And so like the the idea here is that if you're arguing against a Christian, for example, they would say, no, Zeus is not real. Zeus is mythology. Um, and that's sort of like this gotcha card for, OK, then why is your God real? But uh, if I'm looking at it as a Hindu, I would say it, it's not the simple answer of is Zeus real? Well, no, it's more that, you know, there are many different ways of conceptualizing what is generally referred to as God or a higher power. And while for me, that's not Zeus, there's no reason why that should be the case for everyone. And there's not even any reason why that should necessarily be synonymous with this idea of like an archetypal sky daddy or whatever these proselytizing uh, atheists like to use. Right. It's, uh, you know, is something nature or is it God? Does it really matter if it's this power that we do not have control of and do not have full understanding of that is happening? Why does that why does that distinction matter? Right. And I think that Hindus don't struggle with um, holding beliefs about science and about faith and holding them very closely and um, intertwined because we don't have these very like black and white views of what these things are. Um, and so I think that there is definitely value in that approach. I think that there's also a lot of value in understanding that people see the world in different ways. I appreciated what you wrote about as well, because there are ways in which our faith backgrounds, and I say backgrounds because not everyone might still consider themselves practicing adherence of that faith. And yet it does shape the our worldview. It shapes the way in which we perceive the world around us, the way in which we relate to the world around us. And it, it shapes in many ways, not just our internal ethics, but also the way in which we carry out those ethics, the way in which we make very small decisions. I think about this in ways like, OK, well, when I walk into my house, usually the first thing I do is I take off my shoes and I wash my hands and I wash my face and like. Those are just like daily habits, right? And yet they are in a certain way also, um, they're shaped by these sort of like religious background, but I'm not doing it for a religious reason. I'm not even doing it for a, a particularly logic-based reason. It's just that's what I do when I walk in the door to my house. Um, you know, so I think that there are a lot of those things that if we're just completely ignoring them or writing them off and writing off the... Um, writing off not only the people, we miss understanding things on that level. But um, I think we also miss how much of that we all hold ourselves, right? And how much uh, our understandings of the way in which um, our beliefs about the world work and our actions in the world and the way that we interact with other people and the way that we interpret their actions towards us. Um, this is a really funny example, but um, during the 2016 election what one of the merch items that the Rand Paul campaign um the Rand Paul campaign uh released were um floorboards or I don't know what they're called but like the like rubber uh liners that you put on your car to keep your car clean with Rand's face on them and like for me I was shocked because I I assumed someone else had released them not the Rand campaign because I was like oh you're putting your feet on him so you're insulting him like is this like an anti-Rand thing I'm like no 
It's just this is that default cultural lens, which, again, comes from this religious lens that I'm just interpreting the world through. And I just didn't even think about it. Right. And from the same perspective, it's clear to me that whoever made those floorboards, floor liners, I don't know what you call them. They weren't a Hindu. I know that for a certain. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that like just understanding where people are coming from is probably the biggest value. And I could say other things like tolerance and um, and the sort of individualism, the the idea of uh, each of us having our own path. Uh, Ahimsa, like you mentioned, nonviolence or at least attempts towards nonviolence. I think all of those are very valuable. Um, and obviously, there's a religion that I myself embrace. And so I think many aspects are valuable, but at least at the, the meta level, just that's, you know, it, it makes us better uh, people. And I think also better advocates for the ideas that we do have and that we do want to put forward. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com, or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.